Well, it's a treat for me to be back um, after, um, I think I've been here every week, but others have been preaching, and I've enjoyed sitting under their ministry, and I've also enjoyed a bit of a break. Um, but to, today we're back on, and next week we'll be returning to our series in Matthew, which we have been going through for the past few years. Today, at the beginning of the new year, I thought you might forgive me if I didn't give uh, a sermon related to the Nativity of our Lord, uh, at least directly, on this um, time when we remember his circumcision, but to turn to a story about the beginnings of the world. It struck me that as we think about New Year's, we kind of wonder about what we will do that is new and different. We kind of ponder life. We think about things that we may not have thought about in a while and wonder how we're going to manage. And so um, I chose us to look at uh, Genesis chapter 1 this afternoon. And I have called it, as you can see on your outline, which I just handed out, Insight for the Beginning of a New Year from God's story of new beginnings, namely Genesis 1. Christianity is all about new beginnings. New beginnings, especially with God. One of the reasons why I love to, uh, to call myself as a Christian is that Christianity is about a relationship with God that brings contentment and joy. It is good news from beginning to end. And um, I think many of us in the room, if not all of us, can think of some point in our lives when we realize that God had done something incredible in our lives, that God had brought a peace and a contentment into us by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ. I was reminded earlier this week of the story of Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, who had a new beginning. And it was a time when he understood the gospel and he rediscovered it for the benefit of the church. One time when he was a, a sulking monk worried about the wrath of God. And as I read his account from Luther's Tower experience in brief, I want to invite you, perhaps uh, again or for even for the first time, to think about making a new beginning by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and coming to know his faith and his peace and his contentment and his joy. Because it truly is a life-transforming experience. Luther writes this. He said, I had, a con I, had conceived, I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. But thus far there had stood in my way the one expression, righteousness from God. I hated that expression, righteousness from God. I had been taught to understand that righteousness by which God is righteous and by which he punishes sinners and the unrighteous. But I felt that, I was, that before God that I was a sinner and extremely troubled conscience. I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. Why does God heap up sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with his justice and wrath? This is how I was reading with wild and disturbed conscience. 
I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. And then at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to the context. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, just, it is, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. I began to understand in this verse the righteousness of God being a gift that is by faith. I began to understand, continues Luther, that this verse means that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. It is a passive righteousness by which the merciful God justifies us, makes us righteous by faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. And thus began a revolution in the history of Christianity, a new beginning as it were. And if you want to think about any new beginnings this week, this year, I can't recommend one more worthy and more important for us all to contemplate than that of the gospel message that we are brought into a peaceful relationship, a joyous relationship, a relationship of forgiveness when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's something that we do for the first time at some point in our lives, whether we are conscious of it or not. And it's something that we can continue to do. One of the questions that I love to ask people who are wondering about whether they are um, understanding the gospel correctly is simply to say, if you were to find yourself dying and having gone to heaven today, and you meet St. Peter at the gate or whoever's at the gate, and they say, why should we let you in? How you answer that question tells me whether you understand the gospel or not. If you begin to want to, to, to recite church attendance, you want to recite the things that you've done, the points that you've collected, the virtuous things that you've done, I've got to be frank, you simply don't understand the gospel. The only answer that you could give and should give to St. Peter is that you have no right to be allowed into heaven. Your only right comes by, fact, by the fact that you're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he has imputed his righteousness to you and that you are literally kind of piggybacking upon all of his merit and all of his grace. So the answer is, I don't deserve to be here, but for some wonderful reason, God sent his son who died for me and who died on the cross to pay for my sins. And ever since that moment, I have been the beneficiary of the gift of salvation, of the gift of life and of the gift of hope. So that's one new beginning. But as you probably have guessed, I want us to think about another new beginning this morning or this afternoon. And that is the new beginning, the story of the ultimate new beginning, which comes in the book of Genesis. And I want to uh, invite you to um, turn to Genesis chapter 1 in the ESV, or even in the translation that I've offered, which unfortunately ends at verse 14. Page 2 didn't get, uh, didn't get uh, transcribed, but it's very similar in either case. I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon on Genesis 1 before. I can count very few sermons that I have heard on Genesis 1. The reason for that, I think, is because it doesn't contain any particular lessons, and also because it's very controversial. Uh, Genesis 1 has become, I think, the victim of um, 
suspicion and misunderstanding because of the scientific age in which we live. And I thought about how carefully I wanted to tread on this this afternoon, and I have decided that I want to be quite bold. For the past 35 years, I have been a student of the Old Testament, and I have thought about this for most of my life. And I want to tell you that I believe without a shadow of a doubt that Genesis 1 does not address scientific questions that we modern people have. And I want to spend a little bit of time having us switch gears to understand the context in which Genesis 1 was written. And if that sounds a little bit unnerving or it sounds a little bit uh, liberal or something, I want to assure you that um, the statement that I have at the top of the page, Genesis 1 does not directly address contemporary issues of science, uh, is collaborated by um, an associate professor from Dallas Seminary, one of the most conservative seminaries in the whole country. And I guess that probably didn't make its way uh, into your handout because it got left out. Uh, but it's something that Gordon Johnson has uh, articulated in uh, the journal Bibliotheca Sacra. And uh, there could be no more conservative and orthodox a Protestant seminary uh, in the world than Dallas Theological Seminary. So it's something that scholars, including evangelical scholars, have just come to recognize as being so obvious that it can no longer be overlooked. So what I suggest we want to do this afternoon is to say, and this is the question, what can we learn from Genesis 1 about God, the world, and our place in it that will help us be faithful Christians in 2023? It's on your outline. The answer is, once we recognize the purpose of Genesis 1, we can look away from being distracted by modern scientific questions of when and how to consider two relevant who and why issues. One, the nature of God and his relation to the world, and two, the nature of ourselves and our relationship to God and the world. Once we recognize the purpose of Genesis 1. So I want to um, um, suggest, and in fact, um, um, state without any reservation whatsoever that the background to Genesis 1 dates to the time in which it was written. Thousands of years before there was a scientific consciousness, hundreds of years before Copernicus or Galileo or Kepler or Isaac Newton. And it actually dated to the time of ancient Egyptians. And the ancient Egyptians were promulgating to the Israelites a view of many gods and a view that the gods were tied up in creation. There was an earth god, there was a sky god, there was an air god, there was an underwater god, there was a star god, there was a moon god, there was a sun god. Um, and the list goes on and on. And I want us to just take three or four minutes to look at this YouTube summary of um, ancient Egyptian creation stories. And I want to ask, and invite you to consider some of the parallels that you'll see, some of the similar concerns that you'll see in these stories that provide us, I think, with the important context with which to understand Genesis 1. So Joseph and Kevin, if you can cue it up, that would be great. It's gonna talk about two out of five Egyptian Include creation five myths. Egyptian mythology creation stories from four different locations. Creation story number one, Atum creates the world. Location, Heliopolis. Once there was nothing but new, nothing but the waters of new, and the waters of new were formless, and they were dark. And from new, from the void of the waters, sprang Autumn, the first of the gods, the creator of the gods, and all that is. 
Atum wished for bodily pleasure, so he pleasured himself. And from his seed sprang Shu, who is the air, and Tefnut, who is the light. Shu and Tefnut were alone with Atum, alone on the primordial hill in the waters of Nu, and they became separated from one another. This caused Atum great grief, for he loved his children. Atum sent his eye to look for Shu and Tefnut, and while his eye was gone from him, Atum replaced it with another, greater eye. Soon enough, Shu and Tefnu returned with Atum's first eye. The first eye saw that Atum had supplanted it with another, greater eye, and it became jealous. Atum took pity on the first eye in its anger and distress, and took his first eye, placing it firmly in his forehead. With this eye, he could see all that he had created, and all that had and will happen in heaven and upon the earth and in Tuat, the underworld of the dead. When Shu and Tefnu returned, Atum was so overjoyed to see his children again that he wept, and from his tears sprang human beings. But there was nothing else yet in creation but the people and the primordial hill in the void of the waters. Much work had yet to be done. Therefore, Atum, Shu, and Tefnu began the work of creating the world and making a place for people to live in. Shu and Tefnu came together in love, and from them sprang Geth, who is the surface of the earth, and Nut, who is the sky. From the union of Geth and Nut came Isis, Osiris, Nephthys, and Set. Shu and Tefnut, who are air and light, separate Geb and Nut, and together they hold up the sky. Creation Story Number 2 Ra and the Eight Gods Create the World Location, Hermopolis before all things, there were eight who are the four and their consorts. These were Nun and Naunet, Ha and Hauhet, Kuk and Kauket, Amen and Amunet. And these together were water, unendingness, darkness, and the unseen, which is the air or wind. The four gods had the head of frogs, and their consorts the heads of snakes. Together, the eight gods hatched out from the primeval mound that stood within the void of the waters. The eight gods made the Nile and caused it to have its flood time and its receding. They made the lotus grow out of the waters, and when the lotus opened, inside was a scarab beetle. The scarab beetle transformed itself into a divine child, and this child was the god Ra. The lotus is thus the birthplace of the sun, who is Ra, and the lotus is the eye of Ra. When the child Ra wept, his tears created human beings. From Ra's mouth came all the other gods, Therefore, from the eight came the lotus, and from the lotus came Ra, and from Ra came all there is, both humans and divine beings, and the whole world. Seeing that all had been made and all was done, the eight gods died and went to the underworld. Ra and the other gods remained to rule over creation. Creation Story Number 3 The Myth of the Cosmic Egg If you, um, if you had um, noticed uh, in those stories, um, polytheism, uh, it was hard to keep track of all of those gods. And there was one god for this and one god for that. And if you turn on your outline to page five, um, you can see how um, uh, believing scholars who are also Egyptologists have looked at the sequence of events that can be seen as recorded in Genesis 1 and in an Egyptian understanding of creation. And on page five, you see that according to the um, theology of 
creation at uh, Hermopolis, um, there are about nine events that follow pretty closely in terms of their sequence. And the beginning of the story is always with a lifeless, chaotic, watery deep. And in Egypt, this consisted of actually eight gods who were um, kind of working together. And one was the darkness god, one was the, uh, one was the, the, the god of the deeps, another one was the same as, um, as, the, um, as what we would call the, the breath of God. And out of them, the creator god created himself. And you'll notice that in point number eight on page five, uh, on the left under Hermopolitan creation, humanity was accidentally created by the tears of the god Atom. And the sun was created to rule as the image of the sun god Ray. And of course, we know that the, the creation of humanity was far from accidental. And Genesis 1 is concerned to address that when it talks about us being made in the image of God. Point number nine on the right is humans humans were created to rule as in the image of God. And then according to the Memphite creation account, um, God created the world by pronouncing it into, into being. And again, we see in point number eight, the sun was created to rule the world as the image of the sun god Ray. And so the creation of the sun and moon in Genesis uh, come way down the list and are not really highlighted very much at all. The climax of creation in these stories is the creation of the sun, which is the image of the creator God. And in the story of Genesis, it's the creation of human beings who are in the image of God. If you take a look at uh, some of these, um, there's a, I have it as page number nine. There's a handout and just, this is a, this is a schematic diagram of the understanding of the world in, in Egyptian creation mythology. And there's, there's, uh, there's one god who is uh, arching forward, a female. She is the sky god. Then there's another god in the middle with a disc on his head who is holding up the sky god. So there's another god, the air god, who's holding up the sky god. And then there's another god who's the god of the world. There's another god who's the god of the underworld. You have this mixing of gods, and they are all part and parcel of creation. So friends, I think it's clear, and it's just sort of an unfortunate reality of our own day that with our own scientific consciousness and the modern questions that we want to bring to the text, that um, we um, have failed to understand, I think, in, in a lot of cases, what the actual purpose of uh, the story of creation is. And I want to suggest uh, that the purpose of the story of creation has more to do with, uh, not with when and how, but with who and why. And it wants to outline two things that I think are really important for us to think about as we come to the new year. One is about the nature of God and the other is about the nature of ourselves. So let's go back to some basics and think for a minute about the nature of God. Genesis 1, for all of its similarities in, um, uh, in kind of formal ways to the Egyptian material is entirely different. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you still have the same description of the primordial chaos that's there, but these are demythologized elements. The earth was without form. Darkness, not some darkness god, was over the face of the deep. The deep was simply the deep and not a god of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
an Egyptian reading this or an Israelite who had been influenced by Egyptian theology uh, reading this would, would immediately come to recognize that there's an eternal God. He didn't create himself. He didn't uh, generate other gods by playing with himself. Uh, there's only one God, and that God is a God who creates light and who created the world. So there's one God, and this is utterly novel. He's pre-existent, and he's not enmeshed in nature at all. He created all things, and creation is distinct from him. He's all-powerful, and he has order. He's got a plan for how the world unfolded. And also, this is my favorite part, he has a moral backbone. In Canaanite religion, um, which the Israelites were also familiar with, there was what some scholars describe as being a crisis of polytheism in the ancient Near East. When you read the stories of the gods from ancient Canaan, they behaved no better than, you know, the worst teenager in your neighborhood. Uh, they were uh, drunk, they were rowdy, they, they, they were carousing with women, uh, they were arbitrary, they were moody. And so this crisis of polytheism is something that the Israelites and that the Holy Spirit was interested in addressing as soon as possible. So our Bible begins with a very clear picture of one God who is organized and who's moral. He knows the difference between right and wrong because he said, oh, I made light? That is good. When he came to separate the darkness from the light, God didn't create the darkness, and so he doesn't call it good because it's not. On day two, when he separates the waters above the firmament from the waters below the firmament, those waters represent a kind of a dubious, um, polytheistic, um, ungodly realm, and they are not called good. So I don't know uh, whether I'm being heretical at this point or not, and I should have checked it out, and you can, you can rebuke me if you want, but I noticed in looking at Genesis 1 that the world is not described as being perfect. There's a Hebrew word for perfect. It's the word tamam. The most we get is good. Well, that's not the most we get. We get good, but then when humans are created, we get very good. And so God has created a world that is good. This world is good, but the goodness of the world includes God creating distance between good and some of the things that are not so good. And those not so good things were represented by darkness and by sea. God has created a safe place for us to live in. And when we come to December 31st, if we're thinking about the year in relation to creation, in Revelation, we read about the new heaven and the new earth. And it says there, there was no sea. The water isn't there anymore because the water represents something dubious. So the perfect world is yet to come. My friends, what are the implications of this for us today? Our allegiance and worship is to be to God alone. And we all know this. Or do we? We know it, but the challenge lies in actually implementing it. You know, God has created a world that's good and has created a world with a lot of things that are really intriguing and engaging. And we have the capacity to create a lot of things that are engaging and intriguing. And we can get distracted by being drawn to the things of the world instead of focusing upon God. Environmentalism is a good thing, but some people have gone to environmentalism to the point where they think that there's no difference between squishing a bug and destroying a human being. They think that somehow 
trees are uh, the embodiment of God. And there have been some philosophers since the Enlightenment who've argued that as well. People like um, uh, Baruch Spinoza or, um, or Leibniz or even um, someone like Einstein who was kind of a panentheist. You got God and you got the world. God made the world. The world is pretty good, but God has nothing to do inherently in himself with the world. I think that has implications for how you and I live out our new year. I have a 1962 Ford Thunderbird that I really like. My grandfather owned a 1962 Thunderbird, and when I first saw this 1962 Thunderbird in the year 2000, I bought it because it was a deal. But I bought it because it also brought back memories of the cars of the 60s and the cars of the 70s, and I could, I could smell myself being in the back of my grandfather's 62 T-Bird. And now as I think about selling the T-Bird, I got to confess, I've been looking at a 2002 to 2005 Thunderbird. This was a revival of the 1955 to 57 T-Birds with the little portal window in the side, this fancy little coupe. And, and there's something in me that says, you know, Glenn, you'd be a lot happier if you had one of those new T-Birds. You know, you still got the T-Bird thing. Uh, it's still got the mystique to the T-Bird. It's cool. It goes fast. It's a lot more modern. Well, I think you know where I'm going with this, right? You may not be into Thunderbirds, but maybe you're into shoes. Maybe you're into new wardrobes. Maybe you're into renovating that bathroom or that kitchen that, you know, is pretty functional as it is. These things are okay in and of themselves, but they have a way of getting hold of us. And they have a way of distracting us so that we spend a lot of our lives preoccupied with stuff rather than with God and rather than with the mission that God has given us. My friends, the Bible begins with an affirmation of the existence of God. Proverbs begins by saying, if you, wanna, if, you want, if you want understanding, the first thing you need to know is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want us to be ardent theists this year. I want us to be ardent monotheists this year. And I want us to be courageous proponents of ardent monotheism. I was talking to a Muslim friend the other day who told me that he believed that Christians believed in three gods. And I thought, well, here's a starting ground. No, Jesus is God's son, but that doesn't mean that God got married and had a wife and that somehow the, the two of them had a baby. There's only one God. And if that's something you can share with your Muslim neighbors, that will take them, I think, in a good direction. It'll take them in a biblical direction. We need to watch out for the sin of idolatry. Paul reminds us when he was speaking of the wickedness of people in Romans 1, of idolatry. And he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I'm not very big on New Year's resolutions because we only need God's grace. And by God's grace, is, God's grace is the only way that we can actually live up to those resolutions. But we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. And we dare not give up too easily. So I want to suggest that... Uh, a grace-bestowed, worthy New Year's resolution would be to ask ourselves and commit ourselves afresh this year 
to a fixation on God and to the worship of God and God himself as one who is good, as one who is powerful, as one who has created good things, including you and me. Well, the second lesson we can learn from the story of creation can be found in the climax of creation, which occurs in verses 26 to 28. You notice that, that God has been, been, been busy compartmentalizing the world. He separates light from darkness. He separates the waters under the firmament from the waters above the firmament. Where the waters under the firmament are concerned, he separates dry ground from water. And on that dry ground, he begins to produce vegetation in day three. And then on days four, five, and six, he fills the spaces that he created on days one, two, and three. On day four, he creates the sun and the moon to govern those realms of darkness and light. On day five, uh, he creates the sea creatures and the birds to occupy the space that he separated by putting an expanse between the waters. And then on day six, he occupies the dry land with animals. But the animals in themselves are not enough. You'll notice in verse 22, when God says, after he made the animals, after he made the creatures, he says in verse 22, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. And then after making us, in verse 28, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same thing that he said to the animals. But having created us in his image as something different than the animals, and we're going to talk a little bit more in a minute about what it means to be made in the image of God, there's something that's added. We're not simply to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but we are to subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. So we've learned about the nature of God and now the nature of humanity. We are the climax of creation and we are made in the image of God. Male and female are both created in the image of God. It's not that man was made in the image of God and that woman was made in the image of man. One might infer that from Genesis chapter 2, but Genesis 1 beats it to the punch and makes it crystal clear that both male and female are created in the image of God. And notice that together they have dominion. In Genesis chapter 1, it wouldn't occur to the woman to rule it over the man or the man to rule it over the woman. Together they are in the image of God and together they're given dominion. So the passage is affirming of humanity and no less affirming of women and females than it is of men and males. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And here um, we're uh, on the second page of your outline. And I want to suggest a few things about what it means to be made in the image of God. I think in a primary sense, being made in the image of God Um, is to be made as a representative of God. Um, when the, the, the Pharaoh, who was the incarnation of God, would put statues of himself all around the territories that he had superiority and dominion over, and those statues would be a reminder, oh yes, there's the Pharaoh, he's the incarnation of God, and he has responsibility over this zone. And so <clears throat> our being made in the image of God is a way of saying that we reflect the character of God and that we are God's, to 
to use a Canadian expression, God's governor generals. You've got the queen, but then you have the queen's representative in Canada, the governor general, and she speaks on behalf of the queen. She acts on behalf of the queen. She represents the queen. To be made in the image of God is to be God's representative on earth. And therefore, it's a big deal, and it deserves this kind of parliamentary chamber announcement that we find in verse 26 when God says, let us make humankind in our image. Who is the us? Well, that's a good question. I think that the us, in its original sense, as intended by the human author, was speaking to something like a parliamentary chamber. Uh, speaking to a council of angelic beings where God as the presider over the angelic council chamber would say, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the climax of the story of creation and it now comes for us to announce the creation of humanity. And so it's a, it's a parliamentary chamber announcement with all kinds of dignity. Of course, we're not made in the image of the council members, we're made in the image of God. But the pronouncement is given in the royal we, as it were. Ultimately, of course, if we read the whole Bible, we can't help but notice the correspondence between the us and the Trinity. One of my favorite exercises as a professor of Old Testament was to ask my students, who's being referred to here? And the students who would say the Trinity, I would say, you're right, but you're going too quickly. And to students who'd say, no, it's not the Trinity at all, I would say, you're wrong, and you're not thinking far enough ahead. Because, of course, the, the plurality here is not left, left on the triune God. But I think scholars are right in seeing that in the image of God, there is rule, but there's also a social dimension. Male and female are created in the image of God. And if God is triune, then the male and the female and the relationships that exist between the male and the female, especially between a husband and wife, reflect the nature of the Trinity. They become one flesh. They're the same. You got a human here, you got a human here. But believe me, there are differences in the particularities as well. And so to be made in the image of God is to uh, experience the otherness of the other and yet to be one with the other. It's very Trinitarian. There's also an element that arises from Egyptian thought that when the we is used, it perhaps means that God has thought about it in advance and now pronounces it. It's as though God has created the world and he says, things are great. I remain in heaven. Who's going to manage? Ah, I have a plan. I've thought about this. And guess what? Human beings are going to be made in my image. And they are going to look after my affairs in the world. They are going to be my ambassadors in the world. Well, what kind of implications does this have for us? Well, there are several. For one, how's your self-esteem? We struggle a lot with self-esteem. There's something within us that tells us that we are worthless, we're ugly, we're undesirable, that God made a mistake when his son died on the cross for us. It must have been for other people. We look in the mirror, we don't like ourselves. We hear constantly from our culture the importance of a certain understanding of beauty that is made up. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. That's why the Bay has their makeup department in the front door. That's why the drugstore wants to sell you cosmetics before they give you medicine. 
my friends, you're made in the image of God. You are beautiful. You are dignified. You have responsibility and authority. You are the imprint of God. Men, women, boys, girls. We are beautiful. We're distinct from animals. God looks at you and says, my, what a wonder. I see myself in you, my perfect self in you. John Calvin and his institutes was reflecting upon the command of Jesus to love our neighbor. And he was struggling with the idea about what to do about the fact that your neighbor is not always the most desirable person in the world. And Calvin's reminder was, as dishonorable as this person may have behaved towards you, and as of little use they might be to you, they have something special. They have been created in the image of God. They bear the imprint of God. And that in and of itself makes it helpful and important for us to honor and bestow dignity and care and responsibility upon those who are our neighbors, including strangers. As we come to the colos, let me go back to the questions of how and where. And they don't take us away from the image of God. They're a further application of the image of God. At the beginning, I said that Genesis 1 is not a scientific treatise. And I think it's a tragedy that it's been regarded as such because it's overlooked. People are scared to preach from it. People are scared to teach from it. They don't know what to do about dinosaurs and other kinds of things. Nothing could be less relevant than the dinosaurs, other things. So what about the questions of how and where? Some of you may be biology students. Some of you may be students of anthropology, human anthropology. So what about those questions of how and where? Well, you might say as one question, God, where are you when the world is hurting and in need? Now, that's not just the question of a student of anthropology. That's the question of everybody on the block. We can be tempted to think that we're deists or that the world is... Is, is a deist world, that God created the world, and then he just kind of left it. And sometimes it seems that way, right? So when you get to heaven, if you have the question, God, where were you when the world was hurting and in need? I think he's likely to turn to you and say, well, I was about to ask the same thing of you. I made you to manage the place. Where were you when other people were in need? That's the job I gave you. You're created in my image. I used to pray, God, make us mindful of the needs of others. And someone taught me to say, God, make us mindful of and responsive to the needs of others. My friends, we are the ambassadors. God has given us this job. And it's, it's an amazing thing. Our role as being created in the image of God is as important as the sun itself was to the creator sun God. When we looked at those parallels, did you notice that the sun was made in the image of God to rule over the day? And every morning, you see the sun come up and you say, if you were an Egyptian, oh, there's the image of the creator God. And it, it, it races across the sky and does all kinds of good. We are the equivalent of that sun. Every morning we wake up and we get to be light for God. We get to be light for the world. We get to be reflective of the image of God. 
I'll come back to that in the conclusion because I want to end it with a children's hymn. But let me ask more, one more question before we finish. Okay, God, well, how and when did you create the world? Well, I think God's answer to that question would be, well, I created some human beings with some pretty powerful intellects. And I go and find out what um, Galileo has been up to. Find out what Johannes Kepler has been up to. Galileo, in response to the accusation that he was being unbiblical because he thought that the sun was the center of the solar system and not the world, he was condemned for it. He was imprisoned for it. And I think there's a lesson there to a more contemporary issue that relates to a, a debated issue in Christian circles. But Galileo's response to the Grand Duchess Christina about this issue in his own defense was this. He said, and I quote, God is the author of two books, the book of scripture and the book of nature. And he is a perfect author and he does not contradict himself. What we know and observe to be true in nature cannot be false. And if scripture seems to contradict what we know, the problem is not with scripture, but human interpretation of scripture. Borrowing a phrase from a church father, Galileo said, scripture is a book about how to go to heaven. It is not a book about how the heavens go. What about the beginning, uh, the, the nature of the solar system? I just love the account of Johannes Kepler in 1619. Johannes Kepler, this was before telescopes were invented. He spent his whole life trying to figure out the mathematics of the planets and how the stars go this way and why the moon appears when it does. And he, of course, had his three laws. By the way, he also had a fourth law, which was he's the one who discovered that Jesus was born before 1 BC, actually in 4 BC. But when he created his third law, in 1619, when he came to understand it, which was that the square of the period of revolution of a planet is proportional to the cube of its average distance from the sun. Okay, I'm already lost. But he says in his book called Harmony of the World, he figured out the solar system, basically. And he said in his, he said in, in his Harmony of the World, he said, I saw the dawn 18 months ago. That was when he figured out earlier things. The bright day three months ago. And several days ago, the brightest sun of a most wonderful vision. Now nothing can restrain me. I let myself go in divine rage. I defy human beings with contempt in this. And then he says, because he's figured out the elliptical orbit of all of the planets around the sun and the mathematics of how they work, he says, I have stolen the golden vessels of the Egyptians to create from them a sacred place for my God, far from the borders of Egypt. If you are angry with me, I shall bear it. The die is cast. I write for my contemporaries, or it does not matter for the future. You see, he realized that he discovered something ahead of the time. Perhaps my book will not have been read for a hundred years, but God himself has waited 6,000 years for someone to gaze upon his creation with understanding. You want to know how the heavens go, look at the math of Galileo, Copernicus, Isaac Newton. You know, I used to think it was blasphemous when it was said of Isaac Newton, and this was actually said of Isaac Newton because he, he, he um, well, he was probably the most famous and brilliant scientist that has ever lived. Um, somebody who knew what Isaac Newton had done and created in his understanding of uh, gravity and of, of planetary uh, matters, said, 
God said, let there be Newton, and there was light. You used to think, well, that sounds pretty arrogant. But if Newton is made in the image of God, and Genesis 1 is not about the how of creation, and God said, let there be Newton, and there was light on that subject. I've been a little bit controversial, but I want us to focus on really where Jesus takes us back. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all of the law and the prophets. Let me conclude with a hymn that I used to sing when I was a child. Apparently you ever heard it in Sunday school. Jesus bids us shine with a clear, pure light, like a little candle burning in the night. In this world of darkness, we must shine, you in your small corner and I in mine. I'm thinking of the correspondence between the sun being made in the image of that sun god ray and us being made in the image of the one true God. Jesus bids us shine first of all for him. Well, he sees and knows it if our light is dim. He looks down from heaven to see us shine. You in your small corner and I in mine. Jesus bids us shine then for all around. Many kinds of darkness in this world abound. Sin and want and sorrow. So we must shine, you in your small corner and I in mine. And then the last verse. Jesus bids us shine as we work for him, bringing those that wander from the paths of sin. He will ever help us if we shine. You in your small corner and I in mine. Amen.